that you speak. And we pray that we would leave for you different because you have spoken to us. We pray this in your son's precious name. Amen. The first reading this morning is taken from Mark, chapter 2, verses 18 to 22. Mark 2, 18 to 22. Now John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting. Some people came and asked Jesus, How is it that John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees are fasting, but yours are not? Jesus answered, how can the guests of the bridegroom fast while he is with them? They cannot, so long as they have him with them. But the time will come when the bridegroom will be taken from them, and on that day they will fast. No one sews a patch of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. If he does, the new piece will pull away from the old, making the tear worse. And no one pours new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the wine will burst the skins, and both the wine and the wineskins will be ruined. No, he pours new wine into new wineskins. This is the word of the Lord. And the second reading is taken from the book of Colossians, chapter 4, verses 2 to 18. So this is our last section of Colossians. Devote yourselves to prayer, being watchful and thankful. And pray for us too, that God may open a door for our message, so that we may proclaim the mystery of Christ, for which I am in chains. Pray that I may proclaim it clearly as I should. Be wise in the way you act towards outsiders. Make the most of every opportunity. Let your conversation be always full of grace, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how to answer everyone. Tychicus will tell you all the news about me. He is a dear brother, a faithful minister and fellow servant in the Lord. I am sending him to you for the express purpose that you may know about our circumstances and that he may encourage your hearts. He is coming with Anisimus, our faithful and dear brother, who is one of you. And they will tell you everything that is happening here. My fellow prisoner Aristarchus sends you his greetings, as does Mark, the cousin of Barnabas. You have received instructions about him. If he comes to you, welcome him. Jesus, who is called Justice, also sends greetings. These are the only Jews among my fellow workers for the kingdom of God, and they have proved a comfort to me. Epaphras, who is one of you and a servant of Christ Jesus, sends greetings. He is always wrestling in prayer for you, that you may stand firm in all the will of God, mature and fully assured. I vouch for him that he is working hard for you and for those at Laodicea and Hierapolis. Our dear friend Luke, the doctor, and Desmus, sorry, and Demas send greetings. Give my greetings to the brothers at Laodicea and to Nympha and the church in her house. After this letter has been read to you, see that it is also read to the church of the Laodiceans and that you in turn read the letter from Laodicea. 
Tell Archippus, see to it that you complete the work you have received in the Lord. And I, Paul, write this greeting in my own hand. Remember my chains. Grace be with you. Well, good morning. It's good to be here at Church of You all this morning. Today we are finishing up our series in Colossians. We've been looking at this series, living in a post-Christian world and what it means to be Christian or how to live as a Christian in a world that's otherwise not Christian. And we've been looking at that topic or that idea as we've been journeying through the book of Colossians, looking at this church in Colossae that's trying to work out how to be Christian in a pre-Christian world, how to remain Christian without the influence of paganism and the worldviews that they are existing in. And now we come to the, the very last bit of Paul's letter here. We come to the bit where he gives some final commands to the church in Colossae about how they ought to live their lives in this world. Let's pray as we begin. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are good to us, you love us, and you want us to know you more. And we pray as we hear from you this morning, we ask that you would teach us and help us to see the goodness of having you as Lord and therefore our responsibility in proclaiming the good news of Jesus to those around us who don't know you. We pray this in your precious name. Amen. Uh, every position in a, in a company or business, every job or vocation uh, comes with responsibilities, obligations and duties as such. If you want to keep your job, you've got to fulfill your responsibilities and your duties. I got my first job when I was 14 years old. Uh, I was working in a, I worked for a company called Strictly Aquariums. Strictly Aquariums, that's it. Pretty much as it was in Blacktown. And, and what it was is that you could go to the shop and buy your Nemos and your Dories, all your equipment you needed to build your own fish tank at home. And so I was 14-year-old Jimmy and I had this, you know, various amounts of responsibilities. And probably had one that, sorry, the most important responsibility I had was to collect the fish from the fish tank and bag it and sell it to the customer. Now, I hated that responsibility. It was frightening because most of the customers didn't want, they weren't interested in the goldfish that were cheap and if you killed one, well, there was 100 of them left. They were interested in the rare saltwater fish that was worth more than my life at that time. <laughs> and so therefore, they'd be like, can you get this one out of the fish tank? And I'd be like, oh, are you sure you don't want the cheap fighting fish or the goldfish? No, 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 we want that one. We want this one. And so I would struggle and wrestle with this fish that's rightly fearing for its own life as well, by the way, as I'm fearing for my own job and my own life as well. And so I hate that responsibility. I, I would do anything I could to avoid that responsibility. I would go and hide in the back if I saw a customer looking at the Nemo. I would go over to the goldfish section and say, no, 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 I'm on the goldfish today. If you want a goldfish, I can help you out, but I can't help you out with the saltwater fish. I'm very, very sorry about that. Now, if you were my boss, you'd be pretty upset at me because I wasn't fulfilling my responsibility to the customer. I had to get that fish out of the fish tank, even if it scared me as such. You would be upset, you would discipline me, because we expect people who have jobs to fulfill their responsibilities, to fulfill their duties, obligations they have in that job. And it doesn't matter if you're a 14-year-old boy working in a fish shop, or if you're an accountant in the business, or if you're the Prime Minister of Australia. You have duties, obligations, responsibilities to fulfill in that job. And there is nothing And this is no different uh, for Christians. We have responsibilities and duties to fulfill. I don't know if you've thought about that before. But as Christians, we have certain responsibilities, which Paul mentions here to finish his letter to the church in Colossae, in in verses 2 to 6. 
So up until this point, Paul has been spurring us on as Christians to continue to walk in Christ as we receive Him as Lord. And our key text for this whole series has been Colossians 2 verse 6. Therefore, as you receive Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in Him. Now, after painting this glorious picture of why it is so good to follow this Lord and Savior, he moves on to show what our responsibilities are as we seek to walk in Christ, as we seek to follow Him as Lord. And our life involves having responsibility towards each other, loving each other, caring for each other, forgiving and loving one another. But we also see here in this chapter, we have responsibility to those outside of the church as well. We have responsibility to the world around us. Now that's incredible. That's really incredible because Paul is writing to a church who have been influenced in a bad way by the pagan world around them, by the non-Christian world around them. And so you can imagine his final commands would be like, okay, now stay away from these people. Don't have nothing to do with them. Don't talk to them, don't engage with them, lest they influence you and corrupt you. But Paul doesn't do that. Instead, instead of commanding the church in Colossae to shelter themselves, to cut themselves off from the community around them, he says to them they ought to fulfill their responsibility to them, that they do have responsibility as Christians to them, to pray for them and to engage them as they walk with Jesus. Now, I don't know about you, but I find that responsibility quite frightening and daunting. And like 14-year-old Jimmy at the aquarium, I kind of wanted to avoid that responsibility. Talking to people about Jesus in our day and age just seems silly and potentially a social faux pas. How do you tell people who believe, who have been told all their life that they are the Lord of their life, that they are in control of all things, how do you tell these people that Jesus Christ is Lord? How do you convince them that's a good thing, that it's better to have Jesus as your Lord and Savior than yourself? It's daunting, it's, it's frightening to have that kind of message. But Paul says we have a responsibility, not just the pleasure, but the responsibility in bringing that news to people. And that's why we mustn't lose heart as Christians. We mustn't lose focus and vision as Christians. We must remain strong and steadfast. And that's why Paul begins this final section with the words, devote yourselves to prayer. We'll not be able to fulfill our responsibilities to ourselves, to each other, and to the world around us unless we pray. Unless we seek wisdom and power that comes from above. So this morning I have two main points about our responsibility to the world around us. Firstly, we have responsibility to prepare our own hearts. And secondly, we have responsibility to engage our world. So firstly, a responsibility to, our own, to prepare our own hearts. As a child, I remember I was very, very absent-minded. I still am in some ways. And like most children, though, I was very, very absent-minded. I had no sense of like, danger around me. I think most kids do, but I really didn't. And I remember one time I was on Penny Hills Road, busy Penny Hills Road, and my hat blew off, and I would just run. I would just run after my hat in the middle of peak traffic, and mum would be screaming at me, telling me to stop running. I had no idea that there's like trucks and cars on the road going by as my hat is slowly blowing onto the road. I would just run after my hat, thinking I had to get my hat. I, you know, that's all I could think of at the time being. But my mum, she could see the danger ahead. She could see if she didn't stop me, I was going to run onto the road and get hit by a car. 
And so mom and dad, they were very careful. They kind of strapped me tight pretty much in the pram whenever we went on main roads and stuff. I'll just start running. That's what I did. We are watchful of our children and grandchildren because we can often see the dangers ahead that they can't. We can often see when things might go wrong. And so therefore, when we watch over them and we pull them back in when we see danger ahead of them. In the same way, that's what Paul is saying here when it comes to how we should pray. In verse 2, devote yourselves to prayer, being watchful and thankful. In the same way we are devoted to watching our kids and grandkids, we ought to be devoted in prayer, watchful and thankful. But what are we being watchful for exactly? Well, Paul gives us a hint back in Colossians 1 and verse 9. He says this, We have not stopped praying for you. We continually ask God to fill you with the knowledge of his will through all the wisdom and understanding that the Spirit gives. You see, Paul's desire as he prays is that they would continue to grow in the knowledge of God in Christ Jesus through all wisdom, lest they fall into temptation and start believing lies about God and about themselves and about the world around them. So therefore, I think he is most likely instructing them to pray in the same way that he prays. He's saying, stay awake, stay alert, stay sober-minded, look at what you've been filled with, and make sure what you've been filled with is the knowledge and the truth that comes from Jesus. Watch over yourself, watch over your heart. Don't fill it with things that are of this world. The word watchful you know, is the same word that was often used with in the military sense, with guards. Just as guards were to guard the palace at all times, always alert of danger, Paul's saying always be alert of the danger of sin as you pray. It's a prayer life that's self-aware, self-reflective, a prayer life that searches the deep crevices of your heart and it says to discern if any offensive way in us to lead and to be led instead into the way everlasting, as Psalm 139 puts it. Now, if we're honest, our, our prayer lives are, are sporadic and at best skin deep. Maybe not, all, not for all of us, but I know for myself, at times it's sporadic and it's barely skin deep. We'll pray for all kinds of things like you know, our health, our jobs, our mortgages, our kids and grandchildren, especially for their health and their future in this world and for our own health and such. But how often do you pray, God, search my heart. Search my heart. See and reveal to me if there's any offensive way in me and remove it. The truly watchful person in prayer is someone who knows the powerful reality of sin and how easy it is for sin to grip onto our hearts and distort what we believe and take us away from God. The person who never prays in such a way is someone who's not mindful of that, who's self-confident. But the person who prays, God, search my heart, knows the dangers of sin and knows that it takes a work of God to change the heart. And so if left unchecked, unwatch, other things will come in and creep in and take hold of our hearts. Which is why Paul says in chapter 2, verse 8, See to it, see to it, that no one takes you captive through hollow and deceptive philosophy. How do we see? We continue to devote ourselves to watchful prayer. We invite God to search our hearts because we know that our hearts are deceitful above all things, as the prophet Jeremiah says himself. 
there are so many things in our world that are vying for your heart, that are trying to grab its affections and loves. And if we don't devote ourselves to the kind of watchful prayer that Paul commands us to, we're not only making ourselves more susceptible to the deception and grip of sin, but we're also failing in our responsibility to watch over our heart for the sake of the world. If we allow our hearts to be consumed by sin, then what hope do we have to show forth the glory and wisdom of Christ to the world around us who are also consumed by sin? We must devote ourselves to watchful prayer. Watchful prayer is the vehicle God has given us to take the knowledge of who He is in Christ from the head to the heart. Cultivating not only a knowledge of who He is, but cultivating a love of who He is as well and a love of His way of life. And so the best way to determine what, if you're someone who is watchful in prayer is to ask yourself, what do I love? Now, that's a big question. What do I love? And we often go to the big things in life, our spouse, our children, perhaps. We often look in a big way. But the reality is your loves all come through in the day-to-day experiences of life. When you're driving your car and someone cuts in on you, your immediate reaction will convey what you love in that moment. If you're on the horn straight away and yelling at the window or if you're frustrated and cursing them under your breath, then perhaps what you love in that moment more than Christ is your time or self-respect or your own self-sense of justice in that moment. It's more than Christ who calls you to be gracious and patient. When you're asked by a friend or someone in your family to pick up the kids from school or to tie up the, the, the kitchen or wash the dishes as such, your reaction in that moment will tell you what you love in that very moment. If you groan and think, oh, I just don't want to get off the couch, Netflix is so good right now, or you think, oh, I'm in the office at the moment, and in the study, I'm, I'm, I'm just focused, I've, I've got my, my night planned out, then what you love in that moment is probably more your own control or comfort time as well instead of Christ who calls you to be sacrificial and to serve one another in love and joy the common trend in all these examples that the heart's love are turned inward on the self and these loves bubble to the surface in all kinds of ways every single day of life and yet we can easily miss these things because sin is insidious and deceptive in the way it works on your heart. And that's why Paul says you must devote yourself to watchful prayer lest sin gets a foothold in your life. For if we don't look any different to the world around us, then why would anyone think they have a need for Christ as Lord? We all need to pray together. I need to pray myself. Lord, search my heart. Know it. Reveal to me any offensive way and lead me in the way everlasting. That's prayer in Psalm 139. It's something we should do, you should do, I should do every single day. In order for us to fulfill our responsibility in reaching the world around us, we need to take responsibility for our own hearts. And heart reflection is a difficult thing to do. It's not hard. It's not, sorry, it's not easy to do. It requires great trust in God and His love for us, a boldness to be confronted with sin. It requires time and meditation 
and ruminating on our desires and whether or not they're Christ desires or they're sinful desires. We need to be praying together in small groups and talking to each other, asking each other questions about what we love, praying that grace would come in and replace that sinful desire with a love for Jesus instead so that we can engage the world around us. That leads us to our second point here. Secondly, we have responsibility to engage our world. So in taking responsibility for our own hearts, as we devote ourselves to prayer, we can own the responsibility we have to engage the world around us. And there are two particular ways that Paul mentions here where to fulfill our responsibility. Firstly, we must pray because salvation is a work of God. Look at verse 3. And pray for us too that God may open a door for our message so we may proclaim the mystery of Christ for which I am in chains. Pray that I may proclaim it clearly as I should. There are many people involved in Paul's mission to the Asia Minor area. We've read about them in that whole chapter. Tychicus, whatever his name is, Epaphras. Uh, these guys, they were a part of Paul's mission to reach the lost in Asia Minor. But when seeking prayer for the work they do, they ask the church in Colossae to pray that God would open a door for their message. In making such a request, Paul recognizes that no matter how effective and strategic they are in preaching the good news, no matter how well they advertise their meetings, they market their gatherings, how well they put it on Facebook or Instagram, no matter how passionate Paul is in speaking the gospel and telling us about Jesus, they recognize that none of this matters unless God opens the door. Opens the door all the way into the heart and allows that message to reach the heart and change their life. He recognizes that salvation is entirely a work of God, which is why he asked them to pray for him. Do you pray for Balgala? Do you pray for the Northern Beaches? That God would open the door to reach the hearts of so many lost people in our area. Do you pray that God will open a door for you to share the news of Jesus to the people in your community, in your world? It's scary, I think, leaving the salvation of those we love into the hands of God. You know, no wonder why we read in verse 12 that Epaphras wrestled in prayer for the church in Colossae because he loved them dearly. I'm sure Epaphras was tempted to think, if only I could make them believe myself, if only I could convince them with what I have to make them strong in their faith and continue in the Lord. And likewise, we might wish sometimes that we would be in control of convincing our friends and our family that Christ is Lord because then we could measure how we're going. We could work out, okay, this needs to be done and said, then that needs to be done and said, and then we won't say this. But Epaphras knew, as well as Paul did, that, that it's actually the good news that salvation is a work of God alone and not our work. Because there is no heart or power that can resist God if he chooses to open the door. There's no authority or government, army or nation, kingdom that can stop God, the God of salvation, from working and opening the hearts of people. Paul being in chains won't stop God and didn't stop God from reaching more and more people with the good news of Jesus. And so Paul prays for us them to pray for him. And we too, and we should also pray because we believe in a God who is so much more powerful than those chains that Paul has 
or any chains we might see in our life today. Our responsibility is to pray for each other and to pray for our community as we seek to show and tell people about Jesus, to pray that doors would open up in the lives of people, that the gospel might come in. Prayer keeps us humble to see that it's God's work. It's God who saves and stays alone. It's our responsibility to petition God on behalf of the world who is asleep to open the hearts and the eyes of our community. So are you praying for Bagala? Are you praying for the Northern Beaches? We're about to go into a new building. When I say about, I don't know how long, but we're about to go into a new building. We mustn't be complacent to think the building is going to go door knocking for us. The building is going to go into the shops and evangelize for us. The building is going to somehow communicate the gospel. For No, no. The building is a tool for us who are going to be doing that. The building is a tool as a place of prayer where we're going to petition God to open the hearts of people in Bagao and beyond. Devote yourselves to prayer. And, if we, and that's only half of it. As we devote ourselves to prayer, we need to devote ourselves to speak as well. So secondly, we must speak because God's work of salvation comes through his people, his messengers. We know salvation is entirely a work of God, and yet the mechanism he uses to bring about this salvation is his people. So they tell others about Jesus and live according to the way of Jesus. Look at verse 5. Be wise in the way you act towards outsiders. Make the most of every opportunity. The church in Colossae is to be wise, or more literally, to walk in wisdom towards those who don't belong to the church, but not so they don't compromise themselves. That's what's interesting here. Not so they don't compromise themselves, but rather to make the most of every opportunity. We often think of Christian wisdom according to the former. We want to live wisely so we don't compromise ourselves, so we can make sure that we're protected from the world around us. But that's not what Paul says. It has the wrong emphasis. Paul says that what should motivate us to live wisely amongst our non-Christian friends in our community and the wider, church, and the wider world around us is a desire to show how good Jesus is and how good he is as our Lord and Savior. How good his way of life is and for those who follow him. We ought to make every single opportunity, wherever we are, to show how Jesus makes life better for everyone who trusts in him. So that our life backs up our words when we tell people about Jesus. Look at verse 6. Let your conversations be always full of grace, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how to answer everyone. We live in a, a graceless culture, in a bitter and angry culture. I don't know if anyone here watches The, the Bachelor. Um, I, I watched it. Sorry, I watched it. Uh, I don't know if you're a fan or not, but I watched it this season and it was fascinating when it came to the last, you know, the, the final night where Nick had to choose between the two girls and he didn't choose them. He didn't choose one. His head was cloudy, he said. He couldn't do it because he couldn't, he couldn't tell either of them that he loved them. And he received such flack for that. He got crucified online for that. He got told by people that he was the worst, he was a coward, that he wasn't ready and prepared, he was a little boy. And I just thought, this is incredible. What a graceless world we live in. And the irony is that I think his indecision actually showed the artificial nature of this whole show and how ridiculous this is that 25 women can date one guy. And I wonder why he was so cloudy and heavy in his head. It's stupid. <laughs> and yet, 
He got destroyed for it. We live in a graceless culture. And even online, if you go on Facebook and watch Christians talk to each other in the name of Jesus, it's not grace. It's not loving. It's not caring. Even when we seek to defend the faith or be apologetic in the faith, we see Christians constantly fighting against non-Christians all in the name of Jesus, hoping to win their hearts and love for Jesus, even though they're kind of tearing them down at the same time. It doesn't make sense. We live in such a graceless culture, and us as a church, we need to be better than that. We need to be so full of confidence in the love of God that we can be gracious even in defeat, even when people disagree with us, or even when people are just smashing us what we believe. We need to be gracious because we have a God who is powerful. So Paul says, be gracious in your conversation. He also says, be salty. Now, what does that mean? Be salty, be seasoned with salt. Uh, so obviously, salt makes food taste awesome. Uh, back then, it also preserved meat as well, because there weren't fridges back then. Now, one of my signature di- dishes at home that I cook for Katie and myself is steak. I, I, I'm a good cook of steak. We don't have a barbecue, but I use a stove, and it works really well. And uh, I figured, you know... Uh, I want to make the steak interesting. You don't just cook a steak and put tomato sauce on it. That's one way to ruin a steak. What you do, sorry for anyone who uses tomato sauce, I don't want to offend you. Um, what you do is you season the steak. You know, I like to put a bit of salt to start with, and I put a bit of pepper on it, a bit of, bit of garlic, a bit of, bit of you know, rosemary sometimes. You've tried rosemary before? It's really good on a steak. Um, sometimes, you know, people have beer battered steaks as well. You know, we, we, we season and marinate our steaks because they want to make the flavor taste interesting and good, and we want to come back to it each and every single time. That's what Paul is talking about here. Our conversations with people outside the church should be so interesting. People should want to come back and go, I want more of this, what you've got. You speak into my life in a way that I've never heard before. We should, our conversations should be seasoned in such a way where people go, this tastes amazing. This is a delicious conversation. This brings me so much joy. To season our gospel proclamation, to season our conversation, I think, is to present the gospel in a way that speaks to the very needs of people in our day-to-day age. The abstract whole thing of Jesus died for you, therefore he is your Lord and Savior, therefore believe in him is all true, but that doesn't speak necessarily to the passions and desires and longings of people's hearts. There are so many people in our world who are lonely and suffering. So many people in our world who are sick, so many people who are pursuing all kinds of things to fulfill something in their life that they think they have to fulfill. They're pursuing sex and alcohol, pleasure, career, success, whatever it might be, hoping to be made whole by this thing. Some people are pessimistic about life. They're just floating through life, hoping to make it to the end and not die, even though they will die. Here's the thing. The gospel speaks to all of those things. The good news that Jesus is able to meet and contour around all those desires and those longings. We just need to understand the world we're in. We just need to understand what those longings and desires are. One of my favorite authors, James K. Smith, talks about the idea of detecting the cracks in the ceiling of people's worldviews, working out where the needs start to shine through and how you can show the gospel. It doesn't simply just plug those gaps in, but when you take away that ceiling, that worldview, and replace it with the gospel, you can see things and clearly and have life and life to the full. 
and life for all eternity. We need to do that. We need to be immersed in the culture we live in, understand it, know it well. Not to become the culture. We need to be wise. We need to become missionaries in our culture. Live in it, understand it, so our conversations can show how Jesus is Lord over it and why that's good news. And so Paul is finishing his letter here to spur us on to own the responsibility, not to hide in our world, away from the world, not to become like our world and forget who Jesus is as Lord. He wants us to live in this post-Christian culture as he's talking to this church in Colossae, entering into a pre-Christian culture. He wants us to be Christian, to call Christ as Lord for the sake of the world we're in. So my brothers and sisters, we live in a post-Christian world, but we must not be afraid. Don't let fear be what characterizes you as a Christian. Let hope characterize you as a Christian. Because we have a God who is mighty and powerful, a Lord who died for our sins and is going to make all things new. We know this in Jesus, who is the one in whom all the treasures of wisdom are contained, who points us to a better world that is coming, and we have a responsibility to point others to that world as well. So as we take up our responsibility of walking with Christ as Lord for the sake of the world, we must take responsibility for our own hearts, devoting ourselves to watchful prayer with great thanks for what God is doing. We must pray for our community and our world that God will open the doors to their hearts to hear the gospel. And then we must speak, but speak in a way that's full of grace and love and that understands the culture we're in so our conversations are interesting, salty, and draw people in to see why it's so good to have Christ as Lord. Amen.